welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm the host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. Today we're excited to be speaking with Juno Diaz about his new children's book, Islandborn. I don't love children's books. I don't have any children of my own. I don't often read them for pleasure, but I actually really liked this one. I did too. I unfortunately didn't get to speak to Juno about the book, but when I received the book, I excitedly sort of went through it. It obviously, you know, takes a non-child about five minutes, but it's a really beautiful little book, and it has a lot of hallmarks of Juno Diaz's exceptional writing yeah. and from many of his other books, and so it should be recognizable to adults and fun for adults to read. Anybody that's a fan of Juno Diaz will also find something, even if they don't like reading children's books, like myself, would find something resonant with his fiction in there. Yes, it would be creepy if both of us confessed right here and right now that we enjoyed reading children's books. Big fan of children's (laughs) books, yeah. (laughs) But we are big fans of Juno Diaz. What's your favorite Juno? I know this is boring, but I do think The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. No, just every time I read it, it's incredible. It, I'm amazed all over again by it. Though yeah. I also really did like Drown. The short stories, I think, are amazing as well. Same. I think Oscar Wow is probably my favorite as well. And he's just been such an exciting force and voice in yeah. the literary scene that it's truly a pleasure to have him on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And again, what I love about Juno Diaz and... What I I suppose also I quite envy about him, too, is how brilliant he is. In this discussion, which started about a children's book, we talk about diaspora, Dominican politics, contemporary immigration politics. I mean, it's a wide-ranging interview that, again, from a children's book, brings out all of these incredibly big-picture questions that he, of course, answers in beautifully composed sentences. Yeah. Well, let's get right to that interview. And I should tell audience members that Kate Wolf, who is not in the studio with us today, was in the studio with me when we spoke to Juno Diaz. So you will hear my voice and Kate Wolf's voice. Let's get to it. We're speaking with Juno Diaz. Diaz is the critically acclaimed author of The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow and This Is How You Lose Her, as well as his debut short story collection, Drown. His most recent work, and the topic of our discussion today, is the children's book Islandborn, which centers on Lola, a young Dominican girl living in New York City, struggling with a school assignment to draw a picture of a home country she barely remembers. As she collects the memories of her family and neighbors, Lola goes on an imaginative journey back to the Dominican Republic, overcoming her sense of loss and disconnection to the island of her birth. Illustrated by Leo Espinoza, Islandborn was published in March by Penguin Random House. Welcome to the show, Juno. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Can you start just by talking about kind of how you got interested in doing a children's book? It's a bit of a departure for you. Well, I mean, I kind of always have been writing about the lives of young people, just not about Mm. the lives of real young people. (laughs) Right. (laughs) True. Ultimately, I think this has a lot to do with my sort of biography as a reader I've always been this insatiable reader, but due to the particularities of my life, I immigrated to the United States at six years old by the time I learned English and was fluent enough to feel comfortable with it. I had completely missed out on picture books, on that whole early reading experience. Mm. It was gone. It's like a complete absence, you know, it's like a gap in the record. And, you know, I always felt it acutely. I was always 
reading to the young people in my life, my godchildren, my nephews, and I always felt that loss rather strongly. And I think a part of me kind of was thinking about that and uh, was thinking about, well, I'm still me, the young person still in me. What, what gift can I give them? You know, what gift can I give him? And that turned me towards thinking about writing a children's book, a book I could never have read or enjoyed at the time, but that maybe can reach parts of me now. And so is this your idea and creation, or did someone suggest this to you? Or you thought, I want to write a children's book? No, I, I had an experience where my goddaughters were asking me to, to write them a children's book, uh, to tell them a children's book. But, you know, those were the words that in some ways merged inside of me with this experience. Did they ask you to tell them a story, and then the story became this book? Or no, okay, no, no, they, they said, me, "Give me a book." They said, "Write us a book. Uh-huh. Make sure that it's about girls like us." Right. So, is the character of Lola based on your goddaughters? They're a composite of my goddaughters and my oldest sister, okay. Marisabella. So there's so many different threads that we can pick up here, because on the one hand, Islandborn participates in a fairly recognizable series of tropes that saturate children's books, right? Like it's the pacing feels very familiar, and that way it's a very familiar children's book. But in many other ways, it's quite different. And one of the things that I particularly loved about this book is its deft attention to diaspora, and diasporic subjectivity. I mean, obviously, that's not the way that your readers are thinking <laughs> about it. I know that. But I think a lot about there's another children's author, Joanne Hippolyte, who talks about diasporic consciousness as this kind of feeling of connection and disconnection, which is a little bit what Lola feels and that she both feels connected to the island, but also doesn't have these concrete memories. And what I like is this feeling of ambivalence and how she kind of nuances and recuperates a relationship to a place that is always there, but is also somewhat of a struggle for her. So I'm just wondering, why was that important for you to represent in the story? And also kind of how did you go through the process of how to talk about Lola's relationship to the island? Well, I mean, I think in some ways there's a lot of readers who are thinking about it the way that you're laying it out. Mm. And uh, in some ways you kind of put your finger on exactly the kind of critical formation that was on my mind. Okay. Diasporic consciousness, something that's been in the critical literature for a long time. It's been a big part of my work for a long time. And that really one of the things that we're thinking about and one of the things as an artist that I've been thinking about and participating in is how do we recover that which is unrecoverable? Mm. And for me, this is enters shades into something I think that's very pertinent for someone like me from the African diaspora, because in some ways that's the key question in the African diaspora. How do we have a relationship with that which no longer exists and cannot be recuperated? Mm. You know, I always thought that this was something that uh, all people of African descent in the New World have to wrestle with. And there's ways that one could evade it, there's ways that one could be permanently haunted by it, there's ways that one can enter into it, and of course, multiple strategies. Certainly, 
it's not exclusive to people in the African diaspora, but I think that there's something uniquely tragic about that experience of enslavement and the rupture that was caused by it. And so for me, there was a very long and large, profound sort of reflection and learning curve around this. I had to realize that even though I did not have direct access anymore to the ancestors and that made me possible to the worlds which they had to survive that made me possible. The very fact of my existence spoke to the reality Mm. of these things unseen, these things unfelt. And therefore, I had to come to terms with the fact that, that I myself am the proof of that which I cannot touch. Mm-hmm. And that we often have to become comfortable with developing a relationship, a dialogue with things that are no longer available. And that's itself not entirely alien. That's, um, I think, a kind of a, a praxis that would help a whole lot of people to think about their community as being comprised of both the living and the dead, to think of their community as comprised of that which they have access to and that which they will never touch. Yeah, that's Um, beautifully put. There's a way, too, in which the characters in this book, right, and it reminded me there's a moment, I believe his name is Mr. Rodriguez. He's at the barbershop, and one of his memories that Lola gets from him is he's remembering these mango fruits, right? And in Leo's beautiful illustrations, you can see, like, kind of a tear coming down his cheek as he's remembering this thing that, as you're saying, also he has no access to. On the one hand, that reminds me of probably one of my favorite poems by Claude McKay called Tropics in New York, in which he's having exactly the same experience of kind of longing for Jamaica and seeing all of these fruits on sale in New York. And then he turns away and cries, I think, is what happens at the end. And yet also, there is, this is true of McKay as much as it's true in your book, there's also sites of incredible pleasure in diaspora, right? It is the people that are always dancing in the street, for example, or the music that kind of saturates everyone's life. So I'm, I'm interested, too, in kind of how do you think about that double-sidedness of diaspora, right? On the one hand, something that is forged out of trauma and tragedy, but that also in its kind of global reach or the way of reinventing one's past in the present and in brand new contexts in kind of new and exciting ways. Well, I mean, I think of it as, you know, I always say it's like in some ways the way that the experience of diaspora focuses in explicit ways, experiences that are general but often too diffused, too unevenly distributed to kind of get a handle on. I mean, we all know what it means to live simultaneously in joy, in loss, Mm -hmm. in presence, in absence. I think part of the reason why diaspora is so uniquely compelling a metaphor, so uniquely compelling a set of conditions, yeah, kind of an ontology is because we understand that at the lower frequencies it speaks for us Mm. Mm -hmm. and that we are 
in our own ways, having to wrestle with the fact that every moment of our lives is tinged with calamitous loss. And you can disavow it, and I think that that has been a way of life for entire moments in our civilization, or you can come close to it, and it can inform you in ways that don't leave you daunted and don't leave you despondent, but leave you, in fact, uh, with a enchanted sensibility of how utterly precious this moment is. As you were growing up, how did your family talk about the Dominican Republic and how much of Lola's experience kind of mirrors yours in that it was at once this mythic place because it was distant, it became more and more encased in kind of nostalgia and yearning? And how did you understand where you had left when you were a child? I have to tell you, my family were the counter demiurges. They were the the opposite of myth makers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nostalgia for Santo Domingo, I don't think that ever set foot in mm. our door. Uh, mm. uh-huh. uh, there was none of that. My mother had a very difficult time in the Dominican Republic and herself was running from a lot of things in the Dominican Republic and had survived the American invasion, which left her with wounds, actual, actual wounds which she struggled to recover from. Mm. And she was one of those people who left the island, if it had been up to her, would have never looked back. Mm. And I was receiving multiple streams of information about what the island, what Santo Domingo, what the Dominican Republic meant and represented. And then, of course, there was my own take on it. You know, we read oppositionally. Yeah. We don't always just say, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to accept everything that it is. We look at the text and we turn it around. And so, you know, I had kind of at least had a lot of pieces of puzzle with I, which I could play with. And I had my own memories that were very stark and intriguing and also in some ways scaled to a kind of a, a granularity that didn't leave a lot of room for romance, you know. Mm. And I guess for me... Santo Domingo was a place that felt always too near, like my mother was it was too near for her, like she couldn't mm-hmm. get far enough away from it. And for me, was a place that I had just felt like I had just been there. How did it go away? Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason I felt such loss was because it felt so near. All the accents, all the foods, the way everybody danced, how we celebrated our culture, you know, well, how because we interacted. You, were, you were five or six, right? Six, when you six, six okay. Yeah, you know, if nobody spoke Spanish and nobody did anything Dominican in my family. It would have been a lot easier to say, "Hey, this thing is far away. Let's turn our back on it." Yeah. Right. And how old were you when you returned for the first time? Oh, many, many, many years. I had uh, sort of um, problems with passports and stuff, and I came back. Though, you know not to lay fully the blame on kind of citizenship stuff. I mean, I came back in my early 20s for the first time. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Juno Diaz, author of The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde and his recent children's book, Island Born. 
We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have author Dan Lopez in the studio with us today. Dan Lopez, in addition to being my husband, is also the author of The Show House, published by Unnamed Press. Hi, Dan. Hi. Nice to be on the show. (laughs) It's nice to see you. Um, So what book do you have to recommend for us this week? Well, this week, it's a bit of a three-in-one. I was very inspired by the SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch Mm. um, that SpaceX put up a while ago to revisit Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, which, as you may know, is made up of three books, Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. Mm -hmm. Each of them chronicle the 100-plus year history of trying to colonize Mars. It's a fascinating look at geopolitics of how two separate planets would develop independent societies while still being tied to each other. It's definitely a hard sci-fi saga. So if you are not a fan of sci-fi, this wouldn't be for you. But if you do love world building and you love finding out how mankind could move to the stars, these are great books to look at. I ripped through them and each one is longer than the last. So that's saying a lot. But yeah, it's fascinating. That image of the the Tesla Roadster just kind of flying towards Mars really brought it <laughs> It brought it home. I was like, you know, it's not that far away. Like, this could be our future. Though Kim Stanley Robinson has said, spoiler alert, in recent years that Mars colonization is probably impossible because the soil is toxic to us. But that doesn't show up in the book, so you get to pretend that that's not true. And that's the benefit of fiction. Yeah, exactly. All right, can you give us the title of those books again and the author? Yeah, absolutely. It's the Mars Trilogy, which is made up of Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. And the author is Kim Stanley Robinson. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Juno Diaz, author of Island Born, his first children's book. So you came over when you already had an experience of that prior life, right? So this distinguishes you in many ways from Lola, who has no memory, right? Exactly. Or, or the memory is, is, it's evanescent. She doesn't really remember. She was about a one year old, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is always quite fascinating to me. My partner is a first-generation Cuban-American, and there's a serious disconnect in many of the ways that you're talking about your own experiences and your mother's experiences between people who left and the new generation that feels that connection both in their kind of local context in the U.S., right, in their diaspora context, but who also kind of long for that return or that kind of touch and to feel that place that one is from. And there's incredible resistance from, you can obviously imagine what my mother-in-law says when we talk about wanting to go back. On the one hand, there's, that place doesn't exist. This place that you want to go to, it doesn't exist anymore. But also then this kind of anger at like, how could you want to go back to this place? I wonder if like, is Lola also somebody, a character that is able to kind of nuance these very different desires that cash out in different ways across generations? And... Those things are just cover stories, right? Mm. In other words, being angry and being kind of reactive, I mean, these are cover stories. What's actually going on, right? Like, really? (laughs) It's simply that I'm, you know, why would you want to go back there? Or it's too peligroso, it's too dangerous? Yeah. Or the fact that this reawakens an injury 
that someone thought had already been scabbed over. Yeah. 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 And I think for many folks, the new generation restarts a dialogue that folks hoped was over. Listen, it's so difficult to leave a world. It's so difficult to have Krypton blow out from under you. It's far easier to never have to think about what it cost you, what it meant. And then when pieces of Krypton start appearing in this new world, no wonder you go weak. No wonder you're scared of it. Because you're afraid if you revisit what happened, it will blow you up. And... You know, and that's not true, of course, but this is the distortion of trauma, and immigration is trauma. And I think that it's important, it was very, very important for me to kind of get a handle on that, that one of the ways that we manage what is often unbearable and unspeakable is to close it off. And I think of Lola as being someone who does the work of the new generation, is doing the work that you're all doing, where you're trying to restart the conversation, because this is an incomplete mourning. This is an injury that hasn't ever healed. And the only way it can heal is if it's reopened and it is properly addressed. And that's, I think, what the new generation can do. And we see this with Lola. She opens up a space for the other generation who's been very evasive and in some ways, very evasive and very mythical. Yeah, there's such a complex subject matter, and yet the mark of children's literature is often it's kind of crystalline simplicity. And that's what often makes children's books so powerful, you know, is that just almost poetic line. So how did you figure out how to balance all your interests in diaspora with the kind of simplicity of the writing itself? Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. How does one create the spell? Yeah. And I have to tell you, I wish I could say that there had been some way. What ends up happening is that you you just throw away so much. You try and try and try and try again. And this way, I have a lot in common with my grad students at MIT who will do an experiment for like eight, nine, ten years until they get the result that works. Mm. You know, and wow. you just, oh my God, you keep trying different proportions. And there's, of course, things that guide you. You read people who do it right. You read Jacqueline Woodson. You read Edwige Dantecat. You know, you try to understand how in the world the date inside of this material, create this alchemical pivot. You try to reverse engineering, and and you fail, and you fail, Uh. and you fail. And, you know, you've got to, in some ways, use yourself as that internal internal flask where you're modeling all this stuff inside of. You know, you're throwing all these compounds in, striking it with lightning, and seeing if anything happens. Mm. Um, How about the illustrations? Do they come after you had finished the text, or did they help you at all? guide you in any way? No, the text was complete. I see. And the thing was, the text was complete, but it was always understood that this was the kind of lines that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. There was never any look at these kinds of wide range of artists, these folks doing something like this, something like that. Mm. I always knew that I wanted that retro look because I thought it was very important to the kind of the arguments 
of the book. When I was looking at the illustrations, it reminded me of The Snowy Day, one of my favorite children's books by Ezra Jack Keats. Was that mm. a reference at all for you guys? Certainly. I mean, think about it. For most of us, we grew up, these were, that was the only kid of color. Was it? We oh, saw. Wow. Right. Yeah, him and Franklin. Uh-huh. <laughs> Franklin. From the Peanuts. From the Peanuts. Oh, wow. Yeah, most people don't. Only someone like me who's like, was so starving, you know. I hung on to Franklin the way a child hangs on to a scrap of clothes. It was uh-huh. like, my God. I also, June, I wanted to kind of turn back a little bit. I'm interested in this, how you kind of translated all of this complexity that we're actually talking about is present in the book. And one of the things that I found fascinating is that, and obviously Trujillo has featured prominently in your writing, in probably all writing about the Dominican Republic, but I was struck by the kind of brilliance in terms of how you bring a figure like that and his kind of almost subject formation defining capacity for many of the people that Lola is talking to, and you just turn him into, he's kind of rendered as a, he's like a bat monster, yeah, that's attacking the people on the island. And I thought about that both as like a brilliant way to talk about an incredibly complex experience and a terrifying and horrifying figure, a historical figure for children, right? That like, how do you represent that? Was that difficult for you to figure out how to quite fit him in? Or did the figure of the monster kind of occur to you quite naturally? No, it's funny you say this, because of course, there is no more central trope in children's literature than the monster, right? Right. And so the monster was kind of low lying fruit, except it failed in every single iteration. It failed. Mm. And what I began to realize is that the reason it was failing is because even though this was a kind of a symbolic vessel, right, for all sorts of fears and concerns and actual historical and traumatic content, on top of it being this kind of standard trope, kind of a standard beans and rice type thing, the problem was that what it was holding, what the flask was holding, what this fiction, this metaphor was holding, was too dark. And it wasn't until I realized that I had to put the monster in a double, a kind of a double insulation that it began to work, that it had to be someone, a time witness, imagining the monster one level of insulation, one level of mediation. Mm. And then Lola imagining the story that the time witness is telling, a second level of insulation, of mediation. And only then did the monster work. Mm. Okay, so when it's been basically repackaged by both her interlocutor and then Lola herself. Well, because in a way we needed, I needed Lola to have agency in this recollection. If it was just I'm the only one who's authorized to say anything about this monster, Mm. which happens in any kind of retelling where there's no room for you to say anything back. The monster becomes dreadful in its unapproachability, in its untouchability. Right. And that's not really appropriate for children's books. But it's not appropriate for anything. The reason why so many kind of historical content movies fail is because, you know, whenever you see these kind of movies that are about, we're trying to recuperate something about 
X group that lived in Y period and suffered Z indignity. Mm-hmm. Is because there's no room for anyone. The audience just sits there and has to take it. Mm. Mm. That's and smart. that leaves you, in, you know, it's funny because it exposes you to history, but it leaves you with less agency. As we kind of start to wrap up here, I'm wondering if you can talk about what you would like a book like Island Born to do. There's, you know, in a lot of the stuff that we've seen, it's about representing more diverse experiences, those kind of things. Like both, why do you think that these particularly immigrant stories are so important? Not just, you know, they've always been important. I'm not saying that, but that are particularly important at this moment. And what do you kind of hope that Island Born does for your kind of children audiences, as well as the parents who are reading it to their kids? I think most of us who are people of color, along with who are immigrants, people of African descent, and all of us who are in historically oppressed groups, we have had very few friends in literature. Mm. Books that we love don't love us back. We'll find really disturbing, racist, sexist, awful crap in them. Right. And we realize, we're like, yo, we've been loving books that aren't our friends, and that's all right, that this world is not perfect. We find ourselves under imperfect conditions. For me, I would hope that this book will afford what often majorities and members of hegemonies have often gotten, where literatures that challenge them, that are transgressive, but that ultimately are their friends. Mm -hmm. They're not a priori opposed to them. And then also that this is such an important moment. We're talking at the cusp, the point of transformation, where only a couple years back, I think it was 2014, was the first time that there are more newborn children of color than white children of color. Mm, The future was born right now. And it is at this point where these stories, stories about the very communities that are the future, this is the community, you know, these stories take on a different significance. And I don't think we're not going to go without a reckoning. We can't have the future being people of color and our literature being just intensely hostile to us without there being a reckoning. And I think we're feeling the tremors. Mm, Yeah. And what can we be on the lookout for in terms of other projects coming up from you? Well, I finished the second kid's book. Okay. And yeah. Send it off to Leo and see if we get this thing going. And still working on a novel and hoping this year to make a lot of progress on it. I'm sure we'll all be looking forward to both of those. Yeah, I appreciate y'all for spending so much time with me. Oh. It was our pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. We've been speaking yeah. with Juno Diaz, author most recently of Island Born. Thank you so much. So thank you. This is LARB Radio's Dan Lopez, and I'm here to tell you about a fun opportunity this coming weekend. Check out Lambda LitFest LA. It returns for a second year with a preview weekend, April 14th through the 15th. We have a great lineup of programming prepared for you, including a discussion with presidential inaugural poet Richard Blanco in conversation with fellow Cuban-American author Eduardo Santiago. We have a submission workshop facilitated by women who submit and a panel discussion about writing queer characters for the screen, featuring Michelle Badillo from One Day at a Time, Brittany Nichols from Transparent and Suicide Kale, and Jen Richards from Her Story and I Am Kate. It's all free and open to the public. 
Lambda Lit Fest LA takes place in the central LA Hollywood area. You can find out more information by visiting lambdalitfest.org. Again, that's lambdalitfest.org. Thanks, and hope to see you there. The publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution, and the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour. Thank you.